Tonight we're going to do, you know, I ended up preaching more Wednesday than teaching. Uh, when I get excited and start moving, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but we had fun anyway, and we learned about a parable uh, in the moat and the beam. And uh, we all know that we have a beam, right? And I told you a bunch of my beams. And so tonight we're going to do something totally different. And I plan on teaching tonight more than preaching. However, I don't know. Are we doing a podcast tonight? So I need to be careful. I think I'm tall enough that if I'm in front of that table for a few moments, we'll be all right, I guess. Because I want to just show you a few object lessons I brought here tonight. This is a portion of a Hebrew scroll on sheepskin. Scribe, of course, wrote that. And it was found in a cave in Yemen. And there's a little plaque telling a little bit about it. And uh, it's worth a lot of money, so I don't want to drop it. But someone gave this to me as a gift, and I've always really uh, cherished it. Of course, it's uh, just to know how old it is and how it came about and all that. You know, the Bible talks about every jot and tittle. Scribe was so careful to get every little tiny mark right. Because a little tiny mark, a little mistake, it reads differently. So they worked so hard. They made mistakes, yes, because they're human beings. And, uh, but this is something you're welcome to look at. And I have it down here for you to look at if you'd like. And just, just to sort of whet your appetite. Uh, this here is a Jewish Bible called the Tanakh. They didn't believe in Jesus. There's not any New Testament books in here. As the Jews don't accept the New Testament, this is an Old Testament. Now, it's, of course, uh, translated into English. The significance of this Bible is the Hebrew arrangement of books in the Old Testament is not the same as our English. Our English, the last book in the English Old Testament is what? Malachi. Malachi is in the middle of this. Their last book is 2 Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? In fact, our New Testament arrangement, you may not know this, is from the Latin. The New Testament is not written in the order of the age of the books. You know that. Now, John's revelation is in the end where it belongs. But, you know, Matthew's not the newest, or excuse me, Matthew's not the first New Testament book written. Mark was written before that, and James. But we don't have Mark and then James, and then it doesn't work like that. They arranged it, and they arranged a lot of things like that in our Bible. But uh, this is the Hebrew arrangement, and I've opened it to the last book, which is 2 Chronicles. And tonight you'll understand why that's significant, because Jesus made a powerful statement to let us know that the Old Testament that they had then and that we have now is the Word of God. In, in Luke eleven fifty one, 51, it, it, it's something you're going to have to really put your thinking caps on. I was up at a board meeting. We have seven pastors on our board. And Jack and I, Jack was here Wednesday, the elder Jewish gentleman that's back here. And I taught that, that about two or three times, and finally these pastors got it, and it turned into a good time in the board meeting because we got excited about it. And that will excite you to see that verse once it clicks and once you understand Luke eleven fifty one. I don't have a William Tyndale, one of the oldest English versions, but I do have a Geneva Bible. Uh, in uh, 1599, if you want to look at it, it was translated by Congregationalist uh, uh, bishops of a Congregationalist church. It's just a very old Bible, uh, older than the King James that, that uh, we hold to. 
And uh, so just something up here for you to look at. And then I have a 1611 King James Bible, which none of you have tonight. You all have a 1769, I would say, is what you hold in your hands, because this had the Apocrypha in it. It's a 1611, but remember, that Apocrypha had to be taken out. Those are the Catholic books. Brother Frank knows about that. And so this is, a, this is a 1611, and you're welcome to look at this, and you've got the Apocrypha in the back, and of course that's been taken out, and it's not in our Bible anymore. Those are just object lessons for you to see and look. The reason I've decided to teach on this tonight is because I have many, many Baptist friends that have many different opinions on how we got our Bible, and some of them are really uh, kind of a little off, and some of them are way off, and you you start to think, well, what? I hear this here and that here, and, and you start to wonder, what is the truth about how we got our Bible? So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. We're going to look at some scripture in just a moment. I met with two pastors this week, and uh, one of my friend over here at Temple Baptist, Jim Rushing's a fine man. He called me and asked to meet, and we just had a good time of fellowship, and, and we just, uh, just spent some quality time together, and, and Jim is a dear man, but he and I discussed this topic and my desire is just to help people to understand how we got our Bible. Uh, my pastor used to say the world's largest denomination is the ignorant brethren. And unfortunately, I hear Baptists spout off a lot of things, and I think, where in the world did they get that? And so we want you to just be aware of how we got our Bible. Now, we have a policy manual in the back. I helped write it, I guess, years ago. Probably did write it or whatever. And we use the King James Version here. But we want to understand, you know, why we have convictions and stand in thing, on things we do. And, uh, so, and, and why some people go a little too far with that stuff. And so we have to be careful because there's a lot of misteaching. I was up in West Virginia preaching for a guy. And I went to a preacher's fellowship. And a preacher got up and said some things that were just outright heresy. And, you know, I was getting this. And uh, because uh, these guys were thinking, well, that's just not, not true at all. And so we're going to look at what is true, and hopefully you'll mark your Bibles. And if you need to give me to give you a copy of my notes afterwards, let me know. But first of all, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you know this verse. And what I want you to do is take your ink pens and mark words when I say mark this, and I'll explain to you what it means. Now, we believe Scripture is infallible. Inerrant, we believe it's inspired, and all those are big words. We want to explain what they mean. Inspired means God breathed. Okay, that's simple, but a lot of people misunderstand inspiration. Note here in chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture, this is old and new, up to when Timothy was written. And we know this goes all the way to John's Revelation. But all Scripture, and the next words are, and I want you to circle these, all Scripture is given by. Mark that, given by. There's a reason you want to mark that. I have heard people talk about the pages as though these pages are inspired or the ink on these pages. It's how we got our Bible that's important. It's given by inspiration. I've known people that the Bible's worn out, they won't throw it away. That's okay, but you realize that when God breathed, he breathed on people to write. We'll explain further. The word inspiration means God breathed. So all scriptures, 
given by inspiration, and that it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it's given by. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's given by. Keep that in mind. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. And there's other verses here we could since we have the podcast, you can go look at it. We could look at 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Luke 1, 70. But let's see what 2 Peter 1, 21 says. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Are you there? 2 Peter 1, 21. But, now circle these, two, these five words. Holy men of God spoke. Holy men of God spoke. Now, you understand Scripture's given by inspiration. And now we read where it says, Holy men of God spoke. Who were these men? Who was inspired? Were scribes inspired? The guys that wrote this down here, were they inspired? No. Scribes were not inspired. Were translators inspired? inspired? No. Who are these holy men of God? Who are these holy men? Well, let's look at it carefully. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. So it came a long time ago, but not by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, who was inspired? I'll ask you. Was it scribes? No. Does everybody understand? It was not the scribes. They were great men. When Moses came down from the mountain, handed the first Ten Commandments and the first parchments to the tables of stone to the men, he said, now you go and you copy this. And when you get done, you get another scribe to copy it. And you got all these people copying Scripture. Who is inspired, Moses or the scribes? Moses. The holy men of God that this is talking about two to 4,000 years ago, they were Moses and Nehemiah and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. Those were the men that were inspired. It's not about the pages and ink. It's about the men. God breathed on them. Said, write it down. Sometimes he spoke in an audible voice. In John's case, he had a vision on the island of Patmos. Peter had a dream in the middle of it. He had a dream about how he could eat meat now. Remember the dream Cornelius' story, isn't that awesome? He sees a sheep come down from heaven, and by the way, that's a table. How do you know that? Well, they used to eat on the ground by spreading a big cloth. So he saw this table come down with all this meat. That was a vision. And that's that wonderful story in the book of Acts. So you have daydreams, night dreams. Jacob had a dream at night. And you had God breathing and speaking in an audible voice like to Moses. So God spoke in many ways. He's divers' manners, as Hebrews calls it, to speak to men. A lot of ways, but don't misunderstand. It was the original 40 guys that God inspired. That was the end of inspiration. The last of inspiration was 95 A.D. And so when I hear someone get up and preach, and they say that translators were inspired, I get frustrated. This is not what Scripture teaches us. Whether you, I, I know up north, I, I know of, of people who really stand on NASB and other people who stand on different versions. And we hear our, uh, some great men on TV have different ideas on that. David Jeremiah, I heard him this morning, what a great preacher he is. I don't even recall what he was using, but different people use different things. 
but they should all recognize that it was not the translators. And we have Bible translations in what, 200 plus languages? And none of the translators have ever been inspired. Certainly this Geneva Bible, the congregational priest, uh, not priest, the congregational bishops that translated this were not inspired. They may have been all saved people who love God, but that's not inspiration. Okay? And you can look at any translation to any language. When I was in Okinawa, I had 40 different nations represented in our church. We had the Filipinos, about 40 of them married to GIs, and we had Koreans married to GIs, and we had Japanese married to GIs, and we had people from all over the world where people had gone to Guam and married someone, and people had gone to Puerto Rico, and, uh, and Norwegians, and I have pastored so many different kinds of people, and they all had their Bible version in their, in their, in their own language. And so that was challenging because I'm preaching in English, and a lot of them didn't have English Bibles, and so we would do all we could do to get them to understand that uh, the men that were inspired were not the Norwegian translators or the Spanish translators or the English translators. It was Peter and Paul and Moses. And if you can just get that much tonight, you're a step ahead of some Baptist preachers, unfortunately. You know that? Did you, that's sad to think about that, isn't it? I've heard that. I don't know if you've heard it in this area, but I've heard it, and I heard it up in West Virginia. And a bunch of preachers were upset. And we got in the van, a van load of us, and Brother Mao. What did you think of that? They knew what I was going to say. I said, well, you know what I'm going to say. And they all laughed because that man said translators were the inspired men. And he actually said this, forget all the original documents. God burnt the, the, the documents back in Jeremiah. We don't need the original documents. And I'm thinking, that just made it worse. Peter and Paul and Moses, oh, I can't wait to see those guys in heaven. You know, of course, we'll have the mind of Christ. We're going to know everything anyway, but I'm still going to ask. Tell me about that, Peter, that dream, and how, how did that happen again? And Moses, what about that burning bush experience? Paul, tell me about Damascus Road. Now, I'm going to know it by then because we're going to have a new mind, aren't we? We're going to get rid of this old body and get a new tabernacle. But I can't wait to learn. And I love the King James Bible. I've been preaching from it for 40 years. I was a youth pastor over here at Memorial Baptist in 1980. 40 years ago, and I, I've used it for 40 years. But I also know the Anglican bishops that translated were saved men and good men, but they were not inspired. You understand that. So we use it here, and it's our standard text, and you, I believe you required in, in all the classes and everything here. I'm not sure, but I know it's in the policy manual. I was here then, and I preached out of it for two and a half years. But do not be deceived about how we got our Bible. Get it down. It's clear in Scripture. So we see that already. Peter and Paul and Moses, two to 4,000 years ago. It ceased in 95 A.D. Another misnomer, I think, amongst some preachers, and they mean well, is they'll trumpet, you know, uh, they'll trumpet one of the Greek texts. Now, the King James came from what we call the Textus Receptus. I have a copy on, my, you know, on, my, on the top of my desk, and I use it quite a bit. And uh, um, a lot of people will talk about Greek documents and make statements that are erroneous as well. Let me just say this to, for you to understand. There are 4,000 Greek manuscripts. 4,000. We have yet to compare them all. I'm hoping someday, it'll be long after I'm dead and gone, that they have all 4,000 in a computer and they can compare them all. Wouldn't that be something? 
Let me tell you what the majority text stance is. They look at, and I'm outside of the box here, I'm sorry. They look at as many as they possibly look at and have scholars looking at all the Greek text. And when all of them agree on something, then that's what the majority text view holds. That since 70% of what they look at agree on this, usually it's 95 to 98, I should say, 95 to 98% are in agreement, then they know what that, how that text should read. And that's how we conclude what's accurate and proper. And so remember now how we got our Bible. We got it from the inspired man and then scribes, and then it came down next to translators. So I'm going to ask for... Uh, for you to get some hymn books available. I'm just going to illustrate. If you can, front row can give me some hymn books. I'm going to illustrate how this happened. And you can imagine, it, it's, it's miraculous. Give me some hymn books, guys. Thank you. And now, the, Moses came down from, we'll just deal with Moses. We don't have time to do 40 authors tonight, okay? Got more? Good. So Moses comes down and he's got the, he's got the first stone tablets. And he says, scribe Larry, I want you to take this, and I want you to translate this. So you, you, you write, you, you now translate it. I mean, I need to translate it. It came in Hebrew. You just write another one just like that so other, ones, other people can have a Bible, see? And, and he gets, and, and Larry gets done with his first one. Is Larry perfect? Now, I don't mean Larry, this Larry. Let's pretend Larry's a scribe. We know Larry's not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But Larry is a scribe, but... He's got the beard. See, Aaron had a beard to his waist. He'll be Aaron in a few years. And so he writes the first Hebrew, and he gives that copy over here. Are you Don? Hey, I got a name right. And he says, Don, now you write one. So now Don's writing one. Is Don perfect? Okay, so Don may have made a scribal error. We don't know. All right? And uh, I got to find someone. I'll, I'll go to Brother Record here. I know his name. So Don gets one, he gives it to Brother Record, says, now you're a scribe, and they've got maybe hundreds of scribes. And so gradually they're getting more and more scribes to write Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, whatever. We could go over the New Testament. Scribes were still, I mean, the caves, they lived in the Essenes, they were still writing the scripture uh, just a few hundred years ago. So now Mike's writing one, and Mike gets done, and Mike... Uh, He's going to start on another one, but, but obviously he's got one done, so he's going to come over here and give it to Brother Brogan. What's your first name again? Kenneth. Don't tell him I ask. This is Kenneth. <laughs> now, Kenneth's going to write one, and when he gets done, he's going to give a copy to, to Brother Bryce, and Brother Bryce is going to write one. Now, we could go on all night, couldn't we? Because we've got to cover 4,000 years. 4,000 years of scribes writing scripture. 4,000 on Genesis, 2,000 on John, right? yeah, 95 AD, so we're in 2020. It's 1,900 plus years that they've been writing it. Finally, Gutenberg invents a printing press, which makes it easier. But you have now, these are all Hebrew scribes. Now it has to go into English, French, German, all these other languages, so now people are getting these copies. Maybe a thousand scribes have made copies, and we're finally getting one in the French people. You're French, aren't you? I can tell. 
And he's going to take it from Hebrew. He studied Hebrew. He, studied, he's, he knows French. He's going to give us a French Bible. It won't look quite the same. French Bible should be yellow. No, I'm just kidding. That's a bad joke. Uh, uh, French mustard. You've got to think about it. Well, anyway, you, here, he's going to do a French one now. Then he's going to do one, someone else is going to do one. The printing press hadn't been invented, but we've got the Bible in close to 100 languages before the printing press even came out. So finally we get Gutenberg, we got the printing press, and now we're doing English Bibles. And we're doing them, and we got all these different ideas because we got all these different guys who made a little jot and a tittle thing here, and we're looking at it, and so what we do is we take the majority view and when there's a little tittle that's wrong from Brother Records, and the others don't have a mistake there, which one's wrong? Brother Record. And that's how they conclude which documents are the most accurate. Now, you understand the object lesson, right? None of these guys were inspired. They're only scribes. Translators came along later. Many, many years later, translators came. And so, you have one of the earliest ones there, the Geneva Bible, the William Tyndale, of course. Remember Whitcliffe and Tyndale, how much they suffered. Being burned at the stake because you translate and you're burnt because of it, that's pretty serious, isn't it? So we got to thank God for those early English versions or we wouldn't have anything. And so now we have, and what we use is, is the King James. We don't have, we don't use a 1611. I've got it down here, the date. I think it's 1769 or 59. But we took the Apocrypha out because they were the Catholic Bible, Catholic books. All right, now, let's look at a couple other things that we've done with Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 21 and 22. You have a 1769. That's when the Apocrypha came out. 1611 you have... As far as the um, 27 books, but the Apocrypha was take out, taken out, and there were a lot of uh, spelling things and changes made in it as well. But look at here at Acts chapter 21. Now, what about chapter divisions, Brother Dan? Okay. We call our Bible today Codex. You say, I've never heard that word. Well, codex means we turn pages. I'm glad when they made it this way. They made it simple for us. They, they put chapter divisions in. They weren't in the original. The original Bible, each book was written in a scroll. Isaiah was 26 feet long. So you'd unroll it there and roll it all the way down, maybe here. I don't know. 26 feet. And Isaiah's not the longest scroll. I think it's the second or third longest. Is Isaiah the second longest book? Second? Well, anyway. We don't need to get into all that. But so they had to add codex pages and then they put chapter divisions in. Were chapter divisions inspired? No, translators put them in. They weren't in the original. You won't see a chapter division there. You have a break in the chapter, but you don't have a, chap uh, a chapter number on there. Uh, I have put the English next to it. But look at uh, Acts chapter 21, the last verse. Read the last line. Read the last line. <clears throat> he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying. Saying what? Well, we have a chapter division. So you read on. So when you study your Bible, don't stop at the end of a chapter, because sometimes the thought continues in the next chapter. Remember, we added those chapter divisions. 
They weren't in the originals. I'm glad we added them. Chapters and verses help us. Could you imagine if we all had a scroll and we came in here and, you know, we had to unroll it and find out where the pastor's preaching or maybe I had to tell you we kept, bring Isaiah next week. You carried your whole scroll in here, you know, because we're going to preach out of, that's how it would have been. But I'm thankful they did that. But remember, chapter divisions weren't inspired. They were added to help us. And when you translate, grammar changes. In Spanish, you don't say, I live in the White House. You say, I live in the House White. So when you have different languages, and we're translated from Greek and Hebrew into all these different languages, you have grammatical changes. And I could, I'm not good. I mean, I've taken Greek and Hebrew, but I'm not good in reading it. I read like a first grader or something. So I could come and I could read you a sentence, and then I could say, here's how that would translate straight up. You know, you're powerful because God made you powerful to witness. Acts 1.8. But all power is going to do so you can be witnesses. You know, I just quoted that wrong. But you have to change it around in translation. So every translation has a different order of words. And so you can't be dogmatic because you have to get the Bible translated in all these languages. So people can hear the Bible and hear the Word of God in their own language. Now, look at Matthew 20, 10, 27, and 28. Something else that we've added for the purpose of translation. The King James translators did it. Every translation committee did it. We call these italics. Italics. Italics are words we've added to make it easier to read. And a good example is Matthew 10, 27, and 28. I love this passage. And sometimes when you don't understand a passage, you can just put your thumb over a couple of words and you'll say, wow, I can understand it a little better. But look at Matthew 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they shall follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. You see the word man? Does it look a little different to you? Look at it carefully. Get your uh, reading glasses on. Do you notice the letters in the word man are slanted or a little bit different than the other letters? Can you see that? Most of you should have that clear in your Bible. That was added to make it easier to understand. When you translate, you do that. You have to do that. So in translation, we're thankful for those translators that did that to make it easier to read. So be careful in criticizing translators because, you know, 400 years ago, they're trying to translate from Greek into English. And sometimes they needed to put a word here or there so you understood it. They're not adding to the original documents. They're, they're not going back and changing what Moses said. They're translating from one language to another. And every one of you that has learned a second language understands this. If you learn a second language or you have to teach someone another language, you're having to teach them to move words around so it makes sense in that language. So when you see those words, recognize what they are. And sometimes I had a Nazarene friend that said, well, that says no man can pluck them out of my hand. It doesn't say that the devil couldn't. Well, I pointed out to him, I said, well, let's look at this carefully. I said, I said, what about the italics, Mr. Reverend Ridenauer? I said, it says, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. That any can stand for anything or anybody. I said, nothing can get you out of the hand of God. 
So you see this verse teaches eternal security as clear as, as day, doesn't it? Amen? You understand that. Uh, it's important. So we have things like that. Look at then Galatians chapter 6. And again, I hope you mark your Bibles. And once, when I say to you, I'm glad that people have convictions. You know, I have, you know, I've used the King James Bible for 40 years, but I won't go up to another man who uses something different and beat him over the head and tell him he's going to hell. You know, he has a different conviction than I do. And, and we want to stand on what we believe. And, you know, we use it here, but we've got to be careful, don't we, in offending people that come into the church and just blast them because they don't have that conviction. They have different convictions than we do. That doesn't mean they're bad people, they're going to hell. So that, that's my concern. I've, I've known people that said, I used to go to such and such a church. And we used to have... 200 in church, now we have 40 because the pastor ran off everybody who didn't agree with him on every little issue. I mean, everybody who went to the movie theater, he ran them off one week, and the next week he ran off all the people that had ever taken their kids trick-or-treating, and the next week he ran off everybody who used a different version, and then he ran off everybody that, that liked a song different than we like, and before you know it, there's nobody left. We need to be inclusive. We don't need to kick everybody out of the church. We want people to come in and hear the gospel and be saved. So we don't beat people up over things like this. We just want to reach them. Look at Galatians 6. Now, another thing in the English you need to understand is the English was translated from Greek. One Greek, can be translated, one Greek word can be translated a dozen different ways in your Bible. I've shown you that on Sunday mornings. We'll keep doing that. But notice Galatians 6, verse 2, and Galatians 6, verse 5. It says here, Bear you one another's burdens. Bear you one another's burdens. Verse 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Brother Dan, is that a contradiction? No. Two different Greek words. When it says here in verse 2, bear you one another's burdens, that means weight or overload. It's one Greek word. When someone has too much on them, you need to go help them carry their load. That's what it means. But the word down here in verse 5, where every man shall bear his own burden, is a different Greek word. It means responsibility. You know, you can't help me with my responsibility. I text my wife something sweet every day. Been married 41 years. You've got to do some nice things to make it 41 years. And I, I'll say beautiful Mary or different things. I can't say, Brother Record, I can't talk with my wife today. Would you text her and tell her how much you love her? You say, that's the stupidest thing I've heard. That's right. It's my responsibility to bring my wife flowers. It's my responsibility to pay my bills. It's my responsibility to work hard, to get a job, to spank my children. I can't expect you to do that. But what if I've had a stroke and I can't cut my grass? I can't fix the pillars on the porch. That's where we come in. That's what it says here. That's where we bear one another's burdens. Because some people can't do some of the things they need to do, and other believers need to come in. But you see, when you explain the meanings of the word, it clears the whole thing up. And when I was a Bible college professor, kids would come to me all upset. Oh, I found a thing in my Bible, and I'm upset. And I said, just calm down. They're different words. Those are italicized words. That's a chapter division. Translators did that for us to help us 
Don't get upset over it. Study, ask questions, learn. Okay. <clears throat> Things when Jesus came, the language of the day was Latin. But the Bible of the day was the Greek Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet, you know. They had the Greek Old Testament. They didn't have anything in Latin. And just to let you know, there's not one good Latin manuscript that's any good. Everything from the Latin Vulgate is corrupt. It was tainted by the Catholic Church. Now, don't go up to your Catholic friend that you're trying to witness to and tell them the Latin Vulgate's from hell and all that stuff. You can read a Catholic Bible and get saved because there's a clear gospel message in there. But we believe the manuscripts were corrupt, leading to some real problems in their translations. But don't attack them. You're not going to reach somebody by going up and saying your Bibles. You know, you could actually take a Catholic Bible and show them Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And I don't know I'm quoting right. Romans 5.8, Romans. You could go through the Romans road. Lloyd, the Romans, not the pizza house you used to own, but you can go through the Romans road in a Catholic Bible and they can come to know Jesus. But the corrupt, the Catholic, the Latin Vulgate was corrupt, intentionally tainted. The New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses, intentionally took the deity of Christ out. So we have to understand there's, there's certain problems. But the Bible of the day that is quoted by some of the New Testament writers, when you see him quote the Old Testament, is the Septuagint. And that's what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. And he didn't understand. And Philip jumped up and said, do you, do you understand what you're reading in Isaiah 53? And the guy said, really? Could someone explain it to me? And then he told him about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? You know, he told him about Jesus. So here this eunuch's hearing Philip explain Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And on and on and on. And that eunuch came to know the Lord. So here you've got a Jewish man telling a black man how to be saved. There's a great reverse of that when it comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in a pit and it was a black man that pulled him out. So Jeremiah was saved physically. The eunuch was saved spiritually. But you have here reaching across racial lines with the gospel. And that wasn't the point of my message. I just want you to understand that, you know, from, from the Septuagint was not the best Old Testament work. The Hebrew was the best, but the Romans didn't understand Hebrew. The reason most people in the day understood Greek in that day, because prior to Rome, it was Greek that ruled the world, Alexander the Great. So everybody knew Greek, and everything was in Greek. That's why our New Testament comes in Greek. And then Rome came in. Greek was still the language. Not everybody can drop a language they learned for generations. I mean, the Greeks ruled the area for hundreds of years. Then Rome comes in, not everybody learns Latin right away. So we've never had a good Latin translation of the Bible. We've had good Greek and then Hebrew and, you know, so forth, but we don't have good Latin documents, I'm sad to say, because it would be good. But when, when the bishops of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, translated this, you read their introduction They'll tell you, we're not perfect translators. We've done the best we could to give you the word of God. And you know what happens? God preserves his word. Let me, let me explain something to you. If you find a misspelled word in your Bible, don't get rattled over it. 
They keep changing. They're, they've pretty much corrected all. There's less than a dozen things now where there's some misspelling. Let me explain. If we have an automobile accident out here, and Larry's a witness and Mike's a witness, and Larry says the Chevrolet ran the light, he creamed into the Ford, crammed in the Ford. And Jeff says, yes, the Chevrolet ran the light, and rammed into the Ford. And Jeff spells Chevrolet wrong. Are they going to throw his testimony out because he misspelled a word? Of course not. Of course not. The truth is retained in that. Later, they may say, Jeff, would you write that and correct that? A misspelled word doesn't change anything. Chapter divisions don't change anything. The truth is pre preserved for us. Think about the miracle of this. With all we've learned tonight, think about this. Those men were inspired, and we still have the Word of God today. Think about that. Is that not a miracle? With all the scribes, and, I, and we know there were thousands upon thousands of scribes. It wasn't just these six guys here, Anchor Hope. There were thousands of scribes and thousands of documents from all these languages and all the translations the old English translations, the King James, and today we hold the Word of God. That's fascinating to me. It shows the miraculous hand of God that we can have the Word of God. And when I memorize a verse, it means so much to me, and later when I'm struggling, that verse will come to mind. Oh, man, I think I'll get through this because I remember God can help me. Now in Him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine, praise God. And this is how you see the living Word. The living word is Jesus. John 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The living word was the Lord Jesus. And if you want to see Jesus, you'll find him right in here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, with God and the word was God. This is it right here. So when you come to church and we open the Bible and we preach, you ought to be excited. We're hearing from God. Brother Dan's a rotten sinner. I've told you that. I mean, I, 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 and you are as well. But God will speak because His Holy Spirit, tonight His Holy Spirit can teach you. And I'm hoping you are clearly understanding everything we talk about. So we've illustrated, we've talked about it. Now I'm just going to show you something exciting. Look at Luke 11:51, And you need to write in your Bible... Write in your column, because this is a little deep, and then we're going to close. I'm already out of time, but this is the most exciting part. And it'll take a few minutes to get this in your brain, because I know you're smarter than I, but it took me so long to, to get this when I first heard it. <clears throat> Luke eleven fifty one. Jesus is speaking. He's making a statement about the Bible. He's making a chronological statement. Look what he says. From the blood of Abel. Now, you think right away, well, Abel was the first martyr. That's not the point Jesus is making. What you need to write next to Abel, circle that, draw a line and put Genesis. Genesis. It's important. I want you to get this. So you circle Abel and you write a line, Genesis. Now, if you were making a chronological statement, it would have been fine because Abel's the first martyr, right? And the last martyr is Uriah. 
The last person slain in the Old Testament is Uriah. So Jesus would have said, if he's speaking chronologically from the first martyr to the last, he would have said from Abel to Uriah. But he doesn't say from Abel to Uriah. What does he say? From Abel to whom? You know where Zechariah's martyrdom is recorded in the Jewish Bible? In 2 Chronicles. Do you get it? Think about it. I got goosebumps right now thinking about it. What is Jesus saying? Is he talking about from the first martyr Abel to the last martyr Uriah? No, he's talking about the first book of the Bible where martyrdom is recorded to the last book of the Jewish Bible where martyrdom is recorded. Here, here's a Jewish Bible. Remember what I said in the beginning? Remember, Malachi is not their last book. It's in the middle here somewhere. Remember I said that? Their last book is what? So what is Jesus saying there, folks? He's saying you have all the word of God. It's no different than if I got up here and said from Genesis to Malachi, you have all the Old Testament, you'd all say, amen. That's what Jesus is saying to the Jews. From Genesis to 2 Chronicles, you have it all. All 39 books he's referring to are in there. They just have a different order of books. Their last book is Chronicles. They have the same books we do. I'm going to repeat it because some of you are still kind of... <laughs> I want you to get that. Let's read this. So Mark next to Zechariah, 2 Chronicles. From the blood of Abel, Genesis, unto the blood of Zechariah, 2 Chronicles, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation... What does that last line say? It shall be required of this generation. What's going to be required of this generation? The word of God, you're going to be required to answer to everything in this book. That's what it's saying. Did you know you're going to answer for everything that's in this book? You are responsible as a Christian to obey all the Bible. Now, we have the New Testament since. So you've got Genesis to Revelation now. But Jesus lets us know that the entire Old Testament we hold in our hands is the Word of God. Let me say it again. Jesus is letting us know that the entire Old Testament is the Word of God. Do you get it? Abel to Zechariah, first book to last. It will be required of this generation. If somebody ever says to you, ah, that Old Testament, I don't know if it's the Word of God, say, well, Jesus thought it was. He told us that all the books we have are the Word of God. Now, I tell you what, I know seven preachers in a board meeting that went and preached that to their church. And I want you to understand, we hold in our hands a very sacred book. And when we preach and teach from this on Sundays, you ought to mark your Bible. You ought to listen. You ought to just take it in. You ought to learn. Intellect, emotions, and will. I tell my preachers, boys, you've got to feed the sheep. People have to learn in church. Peter says, feed the sheep. Second of all, intellect, we have to stir the emotions. You know it's okay to cry in church. Do you know it's okay to praise the Lord? Are you glad that Jesus told us we have all the books and they're all God's Word, the whole Old Testament? Amen. It's okay to have emotion in church. And then we challenge the will. We say it's time to witness. 
We don't need to spend time fussing and fighting. We need to spend time reaching lost people with the gospel. That's our calling. We could really grow because we, we have a good opportunity to just grow. But we have to love each other, and that's a great testimony. We have to love God. That's the best testimony. We have to love sinners enough to reach them. We have the word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we understand how you've preserved the word. We thank you, God, for speaking to Moses, for even writing with your own hand the first Ten Commandments. We thank you for John on the Isle of Patmos and the 38 guys in between those two. For the word of God, which we hold in our hands, and we believe, Lord, you gave it, you inspired it, you gave it by inspiration, and it was infallible and errant, and Lord, we hold today the word of God in our hands. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.